Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Sticking with bond markets and also just markets in general, I am very pleased to say John Author is joining us right now, joining us from our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. John Author is Senior Editor for Bloomberg Markets. Uh, John, I want to talk about, or at least start with, a Bank of America Merrill Lynch February Fund Manager survey that came out this morning that showed for the first time ever in the history of this survey, uh, investors thought that long emerging markets is the most crowded trade. Yes. What do you think of that? Uh, I've find it somewhat surprising. I think it's probably got something to do with the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Um, on the basis of valuation, plainly, lots of people, I have to admit myself included, have been making the point for a long time that, yes, emerging markets do indeed look cheap. Um, and the thing that bothers me about this, and why I suspect the people who are talking to B of AML as, as, as saying it's not popular but crowded, is that so much of it relies on on the dollar. If you have uh, a weak dollar, then this is a really good trade. Uh, I did just check the numbers. The, the JP Morgan um, Emerging Markets FX Index, which is the most sort of popular agglomeration of the indices, is up about 5% from a crushing, horrific low set uh, last fall. Uh, it's still about 1% above its nadir, or nadir, depending on which side of the Atlantic you are, uh, that it was that it set um, early in 2016 in that very serious growth scare that we had at the beginning of 2016 surrounding China. Uh, plainly, there's a long way to recover, but there is still quite a lot of faith put in, um, in uh, the Fed to be as dovish as it said it was recently, and in the U.S. economy to continue to push the uh, help push the dollar up. So, John, what else do you think this trade, this emerging markets hmm. trade, getting crowded? Does that reflect? Do you think investors, I guess, sentiment that some trade deal with China will be achieved, tensions will come down, and that will help EM across the board? I mean, it's certainly the case that. Um, People are working on the assumption that the single most likely scenario is that some kind of a deal is reached because it's in the interests of both sides to do so. I think you do, however, have to call into question whether, I'm not saying that the president and his team are cynics, but they have to ask themselves, this goes back to the West Wing, which I've been binge watching while I wasn't terribly well over Christmas, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, whether he wants uh, an issue or a victory. If he wants an issue, maybe he pushes ahead and lets, uh, and, and we actually get a ratcheting up of the trade confrontation with China. I don't think, I certainly think there is, uh, and this is one of the points that, that, uh, that you know that, that the uh, Trump supporters make often, and I think is probably correct, is that if you want to get China at a point of weakness, this is the best time to try to raise this point in quite a long time. You know, it's interesting to me. We, you talked about the dollar, right? And then we brought up the trade issue mm. and a deal with China. Which is more important? <sighs> I, the the thing that matters most, uh, by far, I think, 
is the underlying health of China. Uh, and, and, and everything else is a symptom that ratchets off it. I like that you say that because in other words, you're not, you're not going to just say trade and some kind of trade agreement because that's kind of facile when it comes to China's slowdown in the economy, which goes deeper. And had, it was sort of there regardless, it's right? It's not so long since the outgoing head of the People's Bank of China said, are we going to have a Minsky? Yeah, we've got to be careful. We don't have a Minsky moment in China. For the head of a central bank to use language like that, for readers, the most of oh, readers, old newspaper man, for <laughs> listeners out there, for listeners out there, I'm still getting better. For listeners out there, uh, a Minsky moment. The last time we had a Minsky moment was when Lehman Brothers went down. A Minsky moment is a catastrophic loss of confidence in debt. Uh, Central bank governors never, ever, ever speculate in public about whether there's going to be a Minsky moment, except the head of the second most important central bank in the planet did do so not so long ago. Uh, so that's still, it seems to me, is the greatest concern. There's a very, there's a cartoon that has done its, done the rounds of social media many times from Hedgeye, where you see this, uh, this, uh, this guy on a, on a, on a, the, the, sh the boat from Jaws, pointing at this rather pathetic little shark, going with tariffs written on it, shouting shark. And meanwhile, this giant octopus is surrounding the, the, the boat with its tentacles and pulling it down, and the octopus is marked Chinese economy. Uh, and <laughs> that, I, I think, I've seen that brought up by bulls, by bears, by people who pathologically hate China, by people who are perma-bullish on China. That is ultimately where it is. I, 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 I think trade, barring real stupidity and nobody, given what's going on back at home, we can't rule that out. Um, barring real stupidity, I don't think trade is as big a deal as whether China can somehow or other deal with this huge amount of credit it's got outstanding. You mentioned home. <clears throat> I'm yes. assuming that's not New Jersey uh, or Long uh, Island. Give us 20 seconds on what you think the latest is on Brexit. The latest, I think the most significant thing that Theresa May said today was that she thinks it's not going to take the, the three weeks that had, it had been thought it would take to clear any deal that's voted by Parliament. She says that it's possible to uh, put it through on a fast track, which basically means that she thinks she can wait literally until one week before Britain is due to leave and put it to a vote. So we have the same track tick as before, which has always been to run out the clock, taken ever to ever greater extremes as we get to the end of the clock. So it's a mess, basically. Yes. <laughs> it's high-risk It's high risk poker, and who will blink first? You no, know, but it's a high-risk poker game that's going to take, you know, months, years. Being the cards keep changed. not very good poker players. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us. John Author, Senior Editor for Bloomberg Markets. Well, Netflix has certainly validated the pay streaming video model. And now we've got a bunch of other media companies, including Disney, following suit. One of the real questions is, is there an opportunity for a free streaming service? And how can that be competitive in the marketplace? So to help us kind of answer that question, um, joining us is Tara LaChapelle, deals and media columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us in New York here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Sarah Halzik, columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us from Washington, D.C. Tara and Sarah Welcome. Uh, Tara, give us a sense of, we, we know how successful 
the Netflix of the world is. You pay your 10, 12 bucks a month and you get all this great content. Talk to us about the free streaming market and what are, what are some of the opportunities there? So what we're seeing is sort of a bifurcation of this streaming market in its sort of nascent days where Disney and AT&T and the companies that think they have a lot of brand power and pricing power are basically trying to replicate Netflix with subscription video services of all different kinds. And then you have on the other side of the market, the Roku channel, uh, Tubi, Pluto TV, some names that may not be as well known, but they're generating a lot of subscribers, uh, people that are looking to save money. They're free streaming services, which in media, we know free just means ad supported. So you're the product. And they're basically, you know, seeing that consumers, certain number of consumers are willing to to tolerate ads and have a sort of, I guess you would say mediocre service relative to like a Netflix or an HBO and be able to watch TV and not have to pay for cable and just pay their internet fees. So Sarah, come on in here to get a sense of some examples of how companies have gained market share substantially by a pro with this free approach while remaining solvent. Yeah, so I think that the e-commerce world provides a really instructive example. Um, and this is a place where uh, a lot of retailers have made the bet that uh, between when consumers are choosing between free shipping and fast shipping, that they're going to want to get it for free, that they're going to want to save money. Um, and Amazon, I think, is the shining example of how this has paid off. That was a core promise of the Prime membership and how they brought people into that ecosystem to begin with was that people didn't want to have to pay for shipping on each transaction. And it's really interesting because in e-commerce, we've seen all this innovation around speed. We see uh, same-day delivery, now even two-hour and one-hour delivery available in certain markets. But shoppers just remain wedded to free shipping. So in a survey that was conducted this holiday season by Deloitte, uh, consumers were asked, which of the following two promises is more important to you in online shopping, free shipping or fast shipping? 88% of them chose free. So um, <laughs> I think it's a powerful example to the streaming world in that we've seen in e-commerce, consumers are willing to sacrifice speed in order to not pay money. And I think with TV, we will see a cohort of consumers that's willing to sacrifice quality programming to not pay money. Yeah, I love how you guys uh, kind of wove in the whole concept of how people like free stuff, free shipping, and how important it's becoming uh, in, into the content business because you know it's, it's a little bit counterintuitive just given how successful Netflix has been and, and even Hulu's having some success with their streaming and Amazon Prime. Um, Tara, what kind of programming, if I go to this type of service, like let's take a look at Viacom. They just paid $340 million for Pluto TV. If I were to go onto Pluto TV or something like that, what kind of content am I going to find? Yeah, I mean, there's some channels you would recognize. I mean, I think Bloomberg TV is on there. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're not going to get everything. And I think that's the point. You know, some networks, like smaller network owners like Viacom and Discovery, which now owns Scripps, you know, that were kind of feeling a little bit, little bit left out of these higher cost uh, OTT uh, streaming products. We're looking to the free streaming options because, you know, there's their shows do generate a lot of viewers, um, which are important to advertisers. And to the extent that you could have a free product supported entirely by advertising, you know, that serves a certain segment of the market. I mean, the especially lower income consumers, which I would hazard to guess is 
maybe even a growing segment of the market. So to the extent that you're trying to reach those people in a world where this balkanization of the TV industry is making these services expensive, you know, and everyone's having to think about, well, if I want HBO, I'm going to need AT&T's product, but I want Netflix, but I also want this other thing. And Well, Tara, just to that point, I have to wonder, do we see people going to these free online streaming services in lieu of the cable giants, in the core types of services or in lieu of Netflix? In other words, who's losing the business to these to these sort of free uh, online services? It's hard to know right now, but I imagine that what we're seeing are younger people or people looking to save money going to these free services, which means they likely have an internet connection. Maybe they still have cable or maybe they have Netflix, but I did a survey recently and you know it was only 100 or so people, but it seems like people really value Netflix. They don't value it enough to be willing to cut the cord and only have Netflix, they do want other things. So maybe a Netflix and a free live TV streaming service is a is a good little combination for some people. Um, and at the same time, they're also said that they're willing to pay more than they already do for Netflix. The average response I got when I asked about that was $19 a month. So there's a lot of value in Netflix. And when I think about people trying to navigate this very jumbled, confusing marketplace and trying to save money, you know, Netflix is very simple and easy and, and that's sort of the beauty of it. And it's not very expensive. And then maybe, you know, a free service is a way that you get your fix with some reality TV shows. So, Sarah, what did, have you guys in your reporting uh, gotten any sense of the advertiser support for this product? Do the advertisers view this as a viable place to put their dollars? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. Tara might be a better equipped to answer a question about where the advertisers are putting their dollars. But I do think that um, it's interesting, the ripple effect of people's preferences for free uh, can show up in ways you don't even expect. And I think that will be important for the TV guys to keep in mind, too. So I think in e-commerce, what we've seen is this preference for free shipping has really driven folks to uh, click and collect services, where you buy something online and pick up in store. Uh, that's the most prominent reason that people choose that. And then that ends up providing this other opportunity for the retailer for what is known as attachment spending, meaning typically when people come in to pick up their online order, uh, they ended up buying 20 to $40 worth of stuff that they didn't even realize they needed. Um, and so I think uh, these these free programs have the opportunity to become something else uh, for these streaming services in the same way that they did for e-commerce. Tara, just real quickly, I'm wondering, what about from the advertiser's perspective? Are they willing to pay up on some, for some of these uh, free services, given the fact that they funnel so much spending toward uh, the Amazons and the Facebooks, right, right. et cetera, of the world? I mean, we got to see what kind of viewership these services get. I mean, it's still very early days, but I know Viacom's standpoint with this Pluto deal was that, you know, they have uh, Telefe in Latin America and, you know, maybe they could marry some of their Spanish language programming with Pluto, which has a younger audience, which has a big Hispanic audience. And not a lot of advertisers are successfully targeting that right now in a very narrow way. So maybe this is an opportunity from an advertiser standpoint with this service. So I think there's like unique ways that they're looking at it and trying to meet those consumers that aren't the ones that are going to just pay for every service out there and have, you know, already have every device and they've got an Xbox and they've got Apple TV. You know, there are a lot of people that don't. And so I think that's where maybe these more niche products are going for. Really, really interesting column. Thank you so much for being with us, both of you. Tara LaChapelle, Deals and Media columnist. Sarah Halzak, uh, columnist covering the retail sector for Bloomberg Opinion. Both of you, uh, thank you for being with us.
Well, we are two days away from Valentine's Day. The pressure is building to get that right gift, and flowers always make the right gift for Valentine's Day. And who better to help us break down the business of the flowers than Chris McCann. Chris is president and CEO of 1-800-Flowers.com. Uh, he company's based on Long Island City, but he joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. So, Chris, we are two days away from Valentine's Day. People always fall back on that classic gift of flowers. How big is Valentine's Day, that time period of Valentine's Day to your business every year? Well, it's such an important day for us because it's so important to our customers. And it's a nice spike for us. It's about 10% of our consumer floral segments annual business, but it's really only less than 5% of our total company's business because today half of our businesses come from our uh, gourmet food brands like Harry and David and Cheryl's Cookies and Simply Chocolate. We really built this celebratory ecosystem. All right, Paul, are you buying flowers for your wife? I think I might be buying flowers for my wife. What kind of flowers are you going to be buying? Um, I'm not really sure. Maybe, you know, Chris can give me, what's the most popular flower arrangement <laughs> Paul for, is for, punching for Valentine's right now. Day? <laughs> Paul I need is some punching help. and not committing. So. He's, he's also a very, very traditional guy, yeah. so I'll recommend roses. <laughs> okay. We'll put a little spin. Trending this year is hot pink roses, so hot we'll put that roses. on it for you. Oh, right. that's really wild. I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned about food. Are, you know, is food becoming a more popular option, chocolate, for example, over flowers? Or is, you know, has that mix continued to sort of more steadily skew toward the food offerings? Well, I don't think it's instead of flowers. What we find with food offerings, especially from our brands like Harry and David or Simply Chocolate, that they're big around the Christmas season and they're complementary to other gifts throughout the year. Okay, hold on a second. How much has the average spending on Valentine's Day changed over time? I mean, are people just going crazy and hog wild here? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but do we have a sense of, you know, what the direction is of the overall spending? Well, I know NRF <laughs> expects it to be up about 4 or 5% this year, about $166 on average Valentine celebration. I hope most of that includes flowers and chocolates. Uh, but it's uh, so it's expected to be up again this year, which is very nice. 100 and what? 66. $166 oh per boy. person. Oh, uh, boy. You're looking at me. Spend. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So, Chris, so what are you seeing, you know... God, you've been in this business 30 years? 35. 30, 30, 35 years. How has consumer, how has the consumer changed and how does the consumer perceives gift giving, not just Valentine's Day? How have the trends changed across the board? Well, what we're seeing is that the consumers are really looking for ways to express, connect, and celebrate. And in this technological world that we live in, this interconnected world, we're looking to see how do we bring the human back into the process more. And that's what we do as a company, really to help you express yourself. We deliver smiles on your behalf. Now, you're using technologies more and more to do that in all different forms, whether it be AI capabilities, whether it be voice computing capabilities, chatbots. So that continues to change. And that's our job. Make it frictionless for you to express yourself. All right. So 1-800-Flowers.com is sort of a, an example of how the world has changed in and of itself. 1-800-Flowers is the telephone number, but since telephones have gone out of style, right. .com is there. What is the proportion of online sales versus uh, calls, and how has that shifted? So of the 1-800-Flowers brand, and some of our younger customers may not know what that means, uh, really the 1-800-Flowers brand... Telephone numbers, the nine, 800 is often a toll-free number for all of you <laughs> who do not know. Yes, carry on. But about 97% of that... That brand's business comes online. And when I say online, more and more of that coming from mobile devices. More than half of our traffic this holiday is from mobile devices. 
So talk to us about the supply of flowers. Where do you get your flowers? How's, what's going on with the cost of flowers? So thinking about the business of 1-800-Flowers, yeah. your raw material costs, your cost of goods sold are flowers. What's going on there? So it's very interesting. In, in flowers as the raw material, costs really haven't gone up because of technology improvements on the supply chain over the last 10 years. Costs have remained stable, if not down a little bit. And we import product. A lot of the flowers come from South America, Colombia, and Ecuador. So the logistics get better and better. But we're also seeing an increase in domestic production over the last 10 years and more and more flowers being grown domestically here in the U.S. I'm going to be such a Debbie Downer. I'm going to be made fun of this for years. How has global warming affected that? Oh, no. <laughs> no, we, we, we haven't seen an effect on global warming on our flower production. Again, Even where you source them? No, and most of the time it's sourced around the equator, which is hot to begin with. Uh, so I think we've been fine on that side of it. All are right. You, what's what's How big are you guys versus, or just size out the market for me. I don't know if it's U.S. or global, and how big are you guys in that market? So we're about uh, overall about 1.2 billion of the estimates that we'll do in revenue this year. Uh, we're growing nicely. We're the leader in the floral category. We're the leader in the gourmet food category. And now we're starting to expand into other product categories as well. Listening to our customers as to what products they will use to express, connect, and celebrate. Thank you so much for being with us. Chris McCann, happy Valentine's Day. Great, happy Valentine's Day to you. Chris McCann is CEO of 1-800-Flowers.com. So it looks like we have a border deal potentially, which suggests that the U.S. government will potentially remain open. Uh, to get a sense of how the credit markets are pricing in these developments, let's chat with our good friend Ira Jersey. Ira is a chief U.S. interest rate strategist from Bloomberg Intelligence. He comes to us from the phone from BI's headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey, where I assume it's snowing down there. Ira, does the bond market, and to what extent does the bond market care about what's going on with the border deal and the shutdowns and all of the uncertainty? Yeah, hey Paul. I'm actually in uh, Washington D.C. this week to uh, you know get a sense of what life is here on on the ground in politics, and it does Good luck seem with like that. you know <laughs> thanks that some deal is going to be uh, is going to be done. Uh, you know, the, I, I think for for fixed income markets and for uh, even risk asset markets in general, um, uh, markets don't like uncertainty. And when you have a uh, resolution to something like this, and that's going to be good for risk assets. You see equities up today. You see uh, bond yields up today. So so bonds doing doing poorly. So that's that's the reaction that you'd expect from an optimistic set of circumstances like uh, like a deal. Um, I, I think what one thing that I'll be looking for is, does this deal also include an extension of the debt ceiling? Because yeah. that, the debt ceiling, as we know, uh, winds up expiring on, on March 1st, and then they'll, the, the government will be able to use extraordinary measures probably to get into the late summer, maybe September, October. It depends on a lot of variables. But um, uh, but if that's done, then, then you know, quite frankly, it's not something, it's not a model that I like to, to have to do all the time and worry about whether or not we're going to see default on the U.S. debt, because that is something that is completely man-made and not, not a, um, it's a political problem. It's not, that's not a, a real economic problem. I love that we can say in all seriousness, I don't like modeling for U.S. default every two weeks because it's just, <laughs> you know, especially since it's totally avoidable. And this is sort of a serious discussion that is ongoing. Ira, I want to pick up on what you're talking about, which is the 
debt ceiling negotiations, which are imminent. Uh, the latest on the government shutdown is that Pre- President Trump still hasn't decided whether or not he'll support the bipartisan congressional agreement. So we don't even know whether we actually have staved off a government shutdown. Is the sign that bonds are not selling off more, in other words, that yields are not rising more and that stocks are not rallying more, is that a sign that investors are still very concerned about the debt ceiling negotiations and that there is a real risk being priced into the market, uh, that there could be some sort of more serious uh, gridlock that leads to another government shutdown? Well, I think uh, I, I think part of it is certainly uh, is certainly the goings on here in Washington. I think the the uh, bigger question for the bond market right now is is how all of this is going to impact confidence and ultimately the uh, ultimately the outcome of the economy. You know, we, we got some really good data just 20 minutes ago with the the jolts data showing that there's a lot of job openings. That there's you know it seems like at least on the job front things are good, but uh, there is I think a lot of question as to how how confident both businesses and consumers are going to be with an environment that's as politically uh, contentious as we have today. Um, and this isn't the only the, the only thing that's that's worrying people, right? So even if we get a budget deal and we you know avoid a shutdown, even if we get the debt limit uh, done, then we still have a lot of trade tensions that, that people are going to worry about. You are seeing some of that actually in some of the data where uh, you have seen some, um, uh, so, some real world data that's uh, that's showing that that's having a, an impact on uh, on global trade, and and that's that's something I think that at least in the corporate boardroom that you're going to have a lot of angst about in the future if if it's not resolved. So Ira, you're you're down in Washington D.C. Uh, I'm sure you're going to wander up to the Fed at some point, but is, is I guess the consensus in the marketplace as people you know try to price in everything that's going on in, in the market, economic, financial, geopolitical, is that the Fed has you know maybe one or two rate increases for the remainder of the year combined with a steady roll off of the balance sheet. Is there anything that you've seen data wise or just discussions with clients that would lead you to believe that that's there's material risk to that kind of scenario? Yeah, so it's, so they're going to be very data dependent, and I actually think that the. Um, uh, that, that basically the the level for them to have to hike is they want to see additional um, uh, an additional inflation impulse. So our wage growth that we're seeing at three and a half percent a year is that going to translate into higher inflation going forward? Um, you know, it tends to it tends to lead services inflation by a little by a little bit. So if you see an inflationary impulse, uh, we think that that's something that's going to be needed for. Um, uh, for the Fed to, to hike again later this year. I don't think they're going to hike before the third quarter. Um, I think that they want to be data dependent. They want to make sure that the economy is on stable footing before they take any additional action. On the on yeah. the other side, if something gets derailed and say equity markets fall another 10% from here or something like that, um, that would be something where they would you know maybe be in more risk management mode, maybe stop the Fed, uh, the runoff, and then maybe even start to, to talk about uh, cutting interest rates. All right, Ira, 30 seconds here. I'm looking at 10, 10 year Treasury yields now at 2.68%. Where would they be if we did not have the trade negotiation tensions or the prospect of a government shutdown? Yeah, we have fair value closer to 3%. And we actually think that that over time, we'll probably get back up there um, again. That That's our forecast for, for year end is, is 3% plus or minus a few basis points. So in other words, there's a discount of three tenths of one percentage point uh, that is being baked in due to the uncertainty around some of these government issues. It seems that way right now. Yeah. Really interesting. Ira Jersey, thank you so much for being with us. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from Washington, D.C., where he's going to try to understand everything that's going on there, and he'll report back, and we'll all make sense of it, and then it will be complete. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.